Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree, the investment bank for the creative digital economy. On today's show, Arya Borkoff, Liontree's CEO, and Leslie Mallon, who heads the public markets division, reflect on the lessons from 2019 as they look forward to what the new year will bring to the business landscape. If you'd like to read Arya's 2019 year-end letter, please visit liontree.com. Enjoy and happy new year. Hi, Arya. Great to see you. Hi, Leslie. Thanks for having me on your show here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I'm looking forward to talking to you about the year and letter, which you recently circulated to the firm. Before I jump into themes, it did strike me in the letter how you characterized Lion Tree as an investment and merchant bank focused on the creative industries and digital economy instead of TMT, technology, media, and telecom. How do you think about Lion Tree evolving as a firm? Well, I like to approach life and certainly business with as few limitations as possible coming into our endeavors. And when you look at things, I want to look at things in a focused way, but also an expansive way. And when you say things like TMT, which stands for telecoms, media and technology or technology, media and telecoms, however you want to do it, you're boxing yourself right away by your definition by saying these are the sectors that we focus on. You're creating sort of a sandbox that has boundaries around it. I don't think that's the way the industry works. I don't think that's the way our clients think about things. So when I say the digital economy and creative industries, that represents the areas that we focus on in all of its evolution. So of course that involves the incumbent players, traditional connectivity players, the telecom carriers, the cable operators, infrastructure, et cetera. But that's the baseline. It also involves things that you wouldn't otherwise just envision or put in the sandbox right now like food technology. It also involves healthcare technology. It involves certainly art and commerce. And that's how I think about it. But I'm glad you asked. Yeah, yeah, makes a lot of sense. So let's delve into the letter. Last year, scaled intimacy was the underlying theme. This year, it's scale players in motion. So could you start by explaining what that is and how you see it manifesting itself across the sector over the next decade? Well, thank you for reading the letter, first of all, and for anyone listening. It means a lot to me that people would take the time and digest these words. But the title of last year's letter was A Work in Progress. I talked about scale and intimacy a lot. Scale, players, and motion may be a different lens, but also to the firm and all of its employees. But then also beyond that, having a message around the broader media industry and technology industries the markets overall, and then maybe the world and where we're looking at things from a macro lens with the largest possible perspective. Everything has nuances and variability, but that's how I think about scale players in motion that, you know, we're coming out of a period of time where there's been a lot of fragmentation, a lot of disruption. You go to dinner parties and it's all about the new company that's going to disrupt this major industry. 10 years ago, that conversation was all about launching a hedge fund And you can see kind of the wave of innovation happening from financial services to our industries that we focus on. And right now it's all been about disruption and fragmentation and 
That has led a lot of companies to um, alter their business models from a status quo environment. It used to be, let's create a digital division. And now digital is just embedded within the soul and the fabric of each company. There's no division that would be archaic. Think about it that way. But also the scale that a lot of the non-technology platforms have gone through to try to create some equilibrium with the tech players has been happening and it's been intensifying with AT&T Warner, Disney Fox, you know, Viacom CBS, Discovery Scripts, even you know, Comcast Sky and an international environment as well. And I think that is a reaction to that dynamic disruption, the playing field changing, and also the fragmentation needing more financial firepower to compete long-term with very low cost of capital today, but that could change in the future. So that sets up the mountain that we've climbed, which is the scale players in motion. And you can see who they are. You can measure by market cap, by revenue, or just by the fact that these companies will not be replaced with that kind of scale in the foreseeable future in our lifetime. You're not going to see another trillion-dollar company created Mm -hmm. uh, over the next 10 years at least, based on what we're seeing today, or at least it'll be more difficult. So therefore, the landscape is getting to be set, yet they're not fully satisfied with where they are because those platforms still need to be dynamic. They're all trying to reach, in a lot of ways, the same consumer. So how do you differentiate one versus the other? And therefore, you have to stay in motion once you have it. But as these companies are in motion and maybe moving more to the offensive right, than defensive, what do you see happening around these incumbents as they shift, again, to a more offensive type of stance? You reference the expectation that major tech platforms' impact on media business models is abating after a decade of fierce competition. Can you expand on that in your view about the sector competitive backdrop over the next decade? Well, I think that it's harder to build a company from scratch today than it was a few years ago for a lot of reasons. One is, you know, cost of capital is increasing. Two is the fact that there are many more players trying the same sorts of things because cost of capital has been low. Barriers to entry have been low. Three is because the players that would normally buy these companies have gotten more concentrated. So there are fewer buyers and exit opportunities for these companies. And lastly, it's harder to raise venture money and justify high valuations very early on because the world's getting more sanguine and we're into a bull market cycle for 11 years now. And so people are more discerning about putting value onto these companies by and large. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying that it's a higher bar for disruption today than it was previously. That doesn't mean disruption is not happening. I think it's just happening more effectively from the scale players because of all the things I mentioned. You have the capital, you have the reach, you have unlimited financial resources, and you have a lot of know-how, and you have the pick of the litter from the companies that you want to acquire. Now, that could lead to some distraction among the scale players so that some of the earlier stage companies in development already could merge with each other or could build sort of the second tier, so to speak, of scale That'll happen sometimes out of necessity more than desire. And certainly there'll be IPOs and other things. But I just think the market is getting tighter and tighter and harder to look at the macro environment as being at the same level of freneticism on mergers and disruption and the new, new thing. I think that happens in a more measured way from the scale players. Gotcha. As you just referenced mergers, but how do you think all this feeds into the M&A outlook for 2020? I say that the M&A environment is healthy because the fundamental underpinnings of what drives M&A are still very much intact, which is you know low rates and strong market dynamics and 
there's plenty of cash out there, and companies certainly need to do things to change. So that leads to strong M&A. But I do think that the pace of that M&A will slow versus where it's been because all the scale players, I, I don't see a lot of them merging with each other. So once you've set up the landscape, then what these scale players need, and we should talk about who they are versus just using a right. big term, what they need to kind of add to the platform becomes less Would material. Would you want to touch on that, who well, you're re- referencing? I mean, the largest ones, obviously, like the Microsofts, the Apples, the Facebooks, Googles, Amazons, you know, the trillion-dollar market cap companies, but not just measuring by market cap, but just by their reach and their ability to constantly put new products in front of consumers and businesses. But then there are also the scale players that have emerged in media like Disney, Viacom, CBS, Comcast, uh, AT&T, Verizon. We have a chart that I think lists all of them. And we go a little bit deeper into Discovery and Twitter and Liberty, SiriusXM, Spotify. I mean, we go deeper into companies that could still be in the consolidation game. But these companies are all very sizable. When you look at them, they could be considered platforms which means that they could offer multiple products and services to a customer or a customer base. But again, the materiality of each deal is less so now, given how big these companies are. And therefore, it's a higher bar and a harder exercise to think that the M&A will lift all boats. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of this will turn to blocking and tackling, operating, innovating to the consumer, diversified and differentiated offerings. And then our job is to be a lot more discerning about where we highlight M&A opportunities or IPO opportunities to bring those out to the market and say, this is the one. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lesson for the firm, for us, to really think about how we prioritize one versus the other. And I think the ones that are in the second or third tier buckets, I think will have a more challenging exit these days. Are there any regions that you think will be particularly active? The U.S. economy is still, I think, the strongest in the world, matched only by China. And I think that's where a lot of the economic underpinnings of like growth really is right now. I think Europe has fragmentation still, so there's opportunities for pan-European strategies in Europe and, and M&A strategies in Europe. And we have certain businesses like the digital outdoor business for Ocean that we have a principal position in public company where that is part of the thesis. But there are other deals and dynamics around Europe that we're focused on. There's also good capital coming out of Europe and family offices, and we try to harness that for the benefit of the firm in the U.S., And then Latin America I still like a lot because family-controlled businesses need scale, and there's some very interesting markets in Africa when it comes to infrastructure and 5G and AI and broadband and basic industries, but selectively for certain countries. But I also feel like we'll see fewer cross-border deals now because, um, again, in-market opportunities are so strong and the innovation there is so strong that I think inside these existing markets will be the focus areas. Gotcha. So on the macro side... Even though recession fears sparked at the start of 2019, the stock market was on fire. Clearly, um, we did not hit a recession, almost 30%. Did you expect that? No. no. Did you? (laughs) (laughs) Not to that extent. I think if we were sitting here a year ago making stock market predictions, everyone would gravitate towards like, I'll probably be flat, you know, plus or minus 5%. I thought flat to up. Flat to up, right? But not up violently, right? Or materially, right? So, yeah, so what changed in the year for you that you missed? Yeah, well, growth, you know, came in. We we didn't have a recession. I mean, there was certainly fears built into the market that we were going to have a tougher economic backdrop, which we did not. 
you know, looking forward now, what is your outlook on the economy, on interest rates? And, and also importantly, how do you think in that backdrop management teams are going to make decisions about allocation of capital? Yeah, it's interesting because in a lot of ways, macro is the only thing that matters. And so if you get the macro right, you know, all boats are lifted by the tide. On the other hand, it's the hardest to predict because it's hard to see the shift. And if there is a shift, and I think what happened last year is that everyone was conventionally predicting a recession because it felt like, hey, it's the right time to not miss the turn. We're 10 or 11 years into a bull market. It must turn. And I think I remember looking at a statistic that at the beginning of 2019, 75% of pundits expected a recession. And now that number starting in 2020 is 25%. So what, what really changed? Just passage of time. <laughs> so predictions like the weather don't often work. And when the shift happens, it's very hard for people to see it in advance versus in retrospect. So we just have to respect that dynamic, that there are things that we're wired to think conventionally, but in reality, the contrarian thought is probably more valuable at the end of the day, in, in my mind at least. So when I see everyone looking at one thing without a lot of data or facts, I tend to look at the other view and say that maybe equally is right and not conventional, so better chance of success. I think the market fundamentals are very strong. Like, uh, there's no reason to predict a recession. Can there be a slowdown? For sure. Will we grow 2% instead of 3%? Fine. Can it go even slower than that? Fine. Will we be into contraction mode? I don't think so. Now, the basic tenets of predicting these things are um, interest rates, inflation, and maybe in this case I would even say uh, corporate taxation. All those factors are at trough levels right now. Corporate taxes are low. Inflation is non-existent and interest rates are low to even negative in some parts of the world. What causes those to increase from here will dictate unpredictable slowdowns versus what I view today as a healthy environment. I have no reason to expect those are going to increase more than just gradually. And even the Fed now is saying 2020 will be a relatively flat year for interest rates. So it feels like that would be fine. What causes those things to change in unpredictable ways, are really political shocks, political events. So we have an election coming up. That's a factor, less predictable. The incumbent usually wins, so you could argue that statistics say there's more certainty coming and we'll be fine. But I think there'll be cycles through the year in 2020 where people will try to prepare for the uncertainty and therefore maybe uh, you know be more um, paralyzed with respect to um, market flows and boldness of thinking. I see no basic reason why the economy can't stay healthy for activity, M&A activity, IPO activity. I just think given the slowdown overall, which is natural, then discernment and prioritization is the important stuff that we can control. But if there were a recession, no problem, right? Like the average recession lasts around 18 months. You know, let's uh, play through it. What's your sense for the mind frame of management teams? Buybacks has been a big theme in the sector. And do you feel like teams are going to be as active in buybacks or holding back a little bit more? That's a great question. That's a question I actually didn't touch on in the letter as much as I wanted to. It was already getting to 14 pages or so, which I think is a dense read, but a worthwhile read, hopefully. But companies are accumulating cash because, again, market fundamentals are strong and companies, by and large, have been generating a lot of cash. If they're not going to do as much M&A with the cash or the M&A opportunities are fewer and far between, then what do you do with the cash? Do you pay a dividend? That usually signifies less growth, which I don't think people are really feeling these days. I think there's still opportunities for growth. Uh, so do you invest in your business? 
go direct to consumer. Like that's what Discovery is doing, right? So investing capital in a direct to consumer business more aggressively. Okay. But you have other cash to do other things as well. So buying back stock, though, when you're at the top of a cycle and you don't know if the market will be higher or lower in the future is tough. So I think a lot of companies are just kind of saving cash today. And I think building cash positions for strategics is probably the right prudent move for being ready to pounce on the right strategic priorities, the right investment, or just as the market cycle changes. I think buybacks have to be um, done when things are just very distressed or the value of the companies are just so discounted versus the market prices that it would be criminal not to capture it. I think that should be something that is opportunistic versus systematic. So less sort of buying back stock all the time around now and more saving the cash as if you're doing a strategic M&A deal, you go into the market and buy back a lot of stock to send a message and also to recapture value. And that's what happens when usually people are swinging one way too much and the companies can then be the uh, contrarian view and the buyer. Great. So I think it'll be selective, but I think it'll be a tool. Gotcha. All right, delving a little more into some other specific sector themes. In a recent meeting you had with Dr. John Malone, which I was fortunate enough to attend, you talked about how the cable companies missed the opportunity to create their own version of Netflix with TV everywhere. So do you see the new streaming video services from the programmers as a sustainable long-term solution to the erosion of the pay TV subscriber universe, or are they just accelerating the destruction of the pay TV bundle? Probably a combination of both. It is definitely accelerating the a la carte model, the breaking of the bundle in a lot of ways. And it's sustainable to an extent, meaning that there are 108 streaming platforms out there today. There were 132, I think, a year ago. So some are being created and some are falling away. (laughs) And so not everyone will win. And I actually think 2020 will see a year of a massive shakeout of the video streaming platforms. Even ones that are just being created now may not last a year. So think about that. All the platforms are going to the same sources of content for production. So they're all spending money with the studios. They're all spending money in developing content in the same places, really. So it really is great for the content producers, but it's going to be very costly and potentially not differentiating enough for each platform. So, for example, companies like Sling and DirecTV Now, like where are those now today? And they were kind of launched with Fanfare maybe even just a couple of years ago, right? So the ones that are being launched today may not make it through the year. And I think that there'll be a combination of platforms that work that are subscription paid services and those that are free, you know, advertising based or sponsor based services. So obviously subscriptions like Disney Plus and Netflix, those are the I think the, the two leaders. And then there's others like obviously AT&T and with HBO Max and many many others, Amazon, Apple, etc. But then there are the free services like Pluto as an example. Hulu may eventually migrate that way as well. And I think you'll have a lot of companies with a paid option and a free option. I personally think the free options are less saturated, probably have a little bit more room to run. Aggregating the audience and having advertising support is probably where I'd place my bet at the margin. But the paid services are going to have to spend a lot of money to sustain themselves and have to have global footprints. So Netflix very much is a global company, operates very effectively outside the U.S. HBO less so. Disney Plus global, but obviously has to expand their programming from the vault into kind of new content. 
But I think more than the video services, these platforms have to have a diverse offering, uh, not just video, but audio, gaming, maybe something transactional like sports betting eventually, things like that. HBO Max is a good example that they've announced just recently mm-hmm. that in addition to their video services, they're going to offer podcasting and audio as part of the HBO Max service. So you're starting to see everyone having to be all things to all people and then that will be saturated and will shake out because it can't exist that way. The consumer is more nuanced than that and doesn't, I don't think, want to take all the services. And then you get to things like engagement. How long will the consumer stay on a platform? What's the churn going to be? And then churn is directly related to price point. What's the pricing power of these services? What I think is interesting about engagement is Netflix itself put out a statistic that when you're on the Netflix platform, if you haven't found content that you want to watch within 90 seconds, you disconnect. It's pretty quick. And they're actually investing in AI platforms to make that decision process faster. So there's going to be a race to like the quickest decision. Otherwise, you're out. That's a function of making decisions quickly and then staying on the platform longer. And so I think there'll be a lot of cognitive AI behavioral kind of technology investment made to see you know how you can go on there. If you go to someone else's Netflix account besides your own, and see what they're recommending for them versus you is totally different, even within your own family. I just think there'll be a lot more technology relating to behavioral science and decision-making about what you're going to do, and that will also be a bit of a differentiator. But So a lot of investment going into the platforms that will basically be going out for the same group. You have to ask yourself how many of these streaming platforms being announced are good announcements for the capital markets to basically feel that the companies are at the crest of the wave, competitive, positioning themselves correctly vis-a-vis the universe of competitors and the options out there? Or are they money makers? Or both? You'd like to think that they're both, right? That there's an alignment between what the capital markets want to see from an announcement perspective and seeing it all the way through to generating cash flow. Right. Right now, most of these streaming services come at the expense of cash flow. So they're investments. So how long will the public markets tolerate the investment horizon? You know, when you're using existing cash flow to get into direct consumer businesses, is that a good thing? Right now, you would, the markets would say, that's great. You're positioning the company for future growth. Okay, that's what we want. We want growth. But ultimately, that growth has to come with enhanced cash flow and accretive opportunities versus what the initial investment, the pre-investment cash flow scenario looked like. And I think that's also going to be something that the markets are going to judge these companies on in addition to the competition. So it's not an operating income-driven measurement. It's a profitability, future earnings driven measurement in addition to the growth. And I think that will have a high bar for success for companies. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Another area I wanted to touch on was the video game sector. You mentioned it a couple times in the letter and sound pretty bullish, not only from a streaming standpoint, but even beyond that. So could you expand a bit on your view on video games, how you see the sector evolving and how it fits into the broader media and technology ecosystem? Yeah, I think motion is good, stagnation is bad. That's how I think about things. Things that move tend to capture value and generate value and velocity. Things that stagnate tend to decay and uh, erode in value. So I look at the consumer services with video being somewhat passive, but things with video games and sports betting and e-commerce being more active functions. And I think that there has to be an element of that in every one of these offerings because the platforms that exist today have the benefit of reach for the consumer and maybe even global reach. And therefore, people want other activities 
for their leisure time beyond just video watching services. And I think video games will have to be part of that, especially when you get to the millennial, the younger demographics. And it's not just video games around social gaming and cloud-based gaming, but also esports and those types of games. I think that continues to be very popular and I think has an element of balance to just watching you know, content, short form or long form, all the time. We're big fans of video games, both the private companies and the public companies. And the valuations have come down somewhat for the public companies. So it may open up opportunities for consolidation. And there's a scarcity value for the best assets. And I think that will be a source of activity for us as a bank at Liontree and, and certainly also for an investment perspective. Gaming, I think, also goes very well with 5G telecom broadband platforms because of the bandwidth that's created. And I think that's a very good application of those platforms for telcos, cable companies, not just the technology players. But the technology players has rolled out gaming at Google with a Stadia platform and Snap and Amazon. And I think you'll see a lot more do that. If you had to make a bet on who would make an inorganic move there between distribution, media, technology companies, any perspective there? I think it's probably more going to be driven by um, the distribution companies. Right. Okay. What about audio? That's been an, an area of focus for Lion Tree for quite some time. And obviously we have our own podcasting with Kindercast and Kindred Media. Why do you believe there's such a big opportunity there? I think a lot of this has been said before, not just by myself, but uh, others. I mean, it's an intimate experience. Audio, I think, is a lot more of a conversation than video. Video is potentially is exciting and stimulating. I don't want to belittle it, but it's more passive. Audio is engaging and it's in your ear and it's intimate. There's also a lot of uh, technology being built around audio, like the AirPods, like the home speakers, Alexa, et cetera. The functionality around what you can put in your ear is just developing now. The innovation is still very much ahead of us. Like the AirPod, I heard now you can have you listen to me talking in a different language and you could have it translated in your ear automatically. I mean, I think that just the utility of audio is much greater. And I think the time spent on audio is much, much higher than video, but under monetized versus video. To me, what's interesting about audio and podcasting is just part of that is how you build the monetization engine around audio. Is it sponsorship? Is it advertising? Is it subscription? Is it commerce? So I think those are still nascent stages and probably heavily advertising driven, speaking about audio broadly speaking, but I think that will get more sophisticated and the fragmentation of the platforms out there will therefore become more concentrated, be more consolidation, and the bigger platform players, Spotify included, iHeart, SiriusXM, but others will want audio as part of their services. And as media companies look for other avenues and areas of growth, how does commerce fit into the big scheme of things? Well, you know, one of the things that I think is fascinating about our country in the U.S. is the, the Declaration of Independence was written in 1776, and there were things written there that were novel at the time like all men are created equal, that of course, right? Or all people are created equal, but that was written down because it had to be said and written down and implemented as a principle of the country. Hundreds of years later, it still very much applies. And everyone says, of course, it stands the test of time. You know, one of those things that you could write down today that will definitely happen in our lifetime is that retail sales will be heavily weighted towards the majority in e-commerce versus physical. Yes. This will happen, I think, next 10 years. So the e-commerce being the majority of retail sales, I think, is inevitable, which requires a more of a direct-to-consumer approach for every brand versus the wholesale approach. And you're seeing that play out in 
the bankruptcies of Barney's, for example, as a wholesale ecosystem that's breaking down, right? And so you have all these brands that need to get to the consumer directly. That requires a relationship with the consumer directly, which doesn't really exist as much in e-commerce as it does in video now, away from companies like Amazon, obviously. But even Ulta, beauty, direct-to-consumer play, is even outperforming Amazon these days. I think there are examples of it. Because of that e-commerce trend, there are things to watch for. One is how many brands can really reach the consumer directly, and are there too many of them? Probably yes. The brands all have power, though, when they can reach the consumer versus going through the middleman or the gatekeeper or the wholesaler. And then three is like which brands will be attractive to the direct-to-consumer platform plays and are there strategic relationships there? And I think those brands are interesting in the fashion area, the beauty space. So they're looking for exchanges, marketplaces, or platforms that will make it easier for brands to reach the consumer or even have a stake together in it. And that's a more vertical model for retail. It also has the effect of having you know commercial real estate potentially have downside because these retail stores are not going to be as plentiful and um, as full today unless rates for the commercial real estate come down in many parts of the country. Right. Yeah. It also seems like there's more avenues for distribution for brands via shoppable content. Yeah. Right? On social media or even on you're watching a TV show and you see something that you like and you want to buy with yeah. the technologies being developed. Well, Instagram, I mean, Instagram is supposed to ultimately be a shopping destination and they've made a lot of efforts in technology to make it a two-click service, right? Facebook, same thing. Facebook marketplaces, different from Instagram, Amazon. These marketplaces are going to be a big thematic that we'll watch for in 2020 here. Right. So what other sectors would you highlight just generally as areas of investment opportunities within the, uh, the media and technology sector? Well, we do think that food tech is interesting. We saw, obviously, Beyond Meat be a very successful IPO. There are interesting companies on the dairy replacement side as well, all plant-based, that we're looking at more early stage. So food tech, we're making some inroads in here and there, all on the venture side, seeing which companies can really scale in that space can be fascinating. Beyond tech, and one of the points I make in the letter is that the best technology recedes into the platform of society. And I credit Satya from Microsoft as really uh, having a great quote around this that I heard him talk about. Because technology has huge influence but it can't be the be-all, end-all. It has to be the facilitator. And life has to be the be-all, end-all. So I like events, experiences, not only global experiences that are created like by companies like Live Nation or AEG, but local experiences, local content. The Museum of Ice Cream is an example right. of an experiential you know, development or innovation. And then when you get to experiences, you get to kind of humanity and things that um, put our connectivity as people at the forefront. <laughs> Maybe we should talk yeah. about the, our podcast because, you know, Kindred Cast is something I'm very proud of because first, you know, just a small plug, very proud that in 2019, Kindred Cast was highlighted on Variety's top 14 podcasts to listen to, which in and of itself makes me so proud and happy and grateful. But when you think about who we were next to, like The Daily, Pod Save America, and other amazing podcasts that have huge reach, it's good company to be in. Kindred Cast is only part of Kindred Media, which is now run by Chris Peterson, who we hired from iHeart. Kindred Media is also about other forms of media that we are going to experiment with as we learn and also helping other companies and our clients with their media strategies and their podcasting strategies as a consultant and as a powering of their platforms. So we're happy to be supporting the industry while we're experimenting with new technologies. And 
I think that'll be fun to develop this year as part of a broader Kindred Media platform. And um, Kindred Media HQ is our Insta handle now. <laughs> right. plug. Well, I do always love looking at your reading list, and you have some podcasts in there as well in your letter. Have you picked any specifically to take a look at? Actually, I have a reading list in the letter that I published that's abridged because I try to make it more manageable to read uh, the books and also to showcase the books that I think are the most interesting. I always have books that are young, that are kind of older ones that I like to bring back and and newer ones. And certainly um, China is a big focus. So this Michael Pillsbury book, The 100-Year Marathon, which is China's secret strategy to replace America as a global superpower. A bit scary, interesting read, tactically. I also uh, like some of these biographies with uh, the Bob Iger book and the Steve Schwartzman book are interesting. There's uh, this book called The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way by Amanda Ripley. That's really interesting. (laughs) And then on the podcast, I mean, I like uh, this Dope Labs podcast. I actually met them. Uh, It's a lot about science. I met these uh, two women through Spotify. And uh, Masters of Scale with Reid Hoffman, uh, I always kind of view as like a very good compliment to what we're doing because he brings a real tech perspective all the time. And we try to bring a bit of the media angle to it. So I, I like that. but um, And the rewatchables is interesting. I would, it basically, um, you go back and talk about movies that like are in our culture, like The Natural is one of my favorites, and Hangover. And, and you kind of go back and talk through it and dissect it. And it's really interesting and nice to listen to. I have a much longer list than I even published. If anyone wants the unabridged version uh, <laughs> for the aficionados out there, I'm happy to provide it. Another podcast I like is the Joe Rogan Experience. And this is actually a good example of what I was talking about earlier with uh, politics playing into different forms of media. The Joe Rogan podcast had Bernie Sanders on at some point last year in 2019. And it had 5 million listens and the video had about 11 million views. So you have 15 million people watching or listening to this podcast on a political topic. That is not matched at all in reach by what's on broadcast television or cable television. The process of writing a year-end letter and expressing thoughts and even coming onto a podcast like this and talking about things does take time and digestion and focusing and synthesizing on around a few thematics and points, and we get to some conclusions and we try to offer those up. What's missing sometimes is really the anecdotes of the experiences in the day-to-day behind the scenes. I always um, pinch myself because what happens in a given day on my calendar or in a year is so special and it all goes back to personal interactions with executives or colleagues or investors or other constituents in the industry. And the richness that comes out of those conversations is really what drives me and keeps me energized to go forward. I'm incredibly discreet about these things, but I do like to bring some of those stories and anecdotes out to share, you know, as appropriate, because I think it gives you a real sense of the day-to-day here. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time, REA. But I did want to close on something you wrote in the letter that struck me as it relates to leadership, but also to life in general. It was uh, the Free Solo reference, which for anyone not familiar with the documentary is about mountain climbing without ropes or harnesses, i.e. no safety net. And in your words, when you climb with a rope, it makes you feel secure, but it is limiting because it forces you to work in a linear way. Without a rope, You have so much more flexibility and choice, which can make it easier to achieve the ultimate goal. I think that is really great food for thought and a great way to end. So thank you very much, Arya. Thank you very much. Thanks, Leslie. 
I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.